Right, the reading today is from John 1, 43 to 51. I'm going to do it this way. The next day Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip's son found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets have also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, Here is a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus said, You believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You should see greater things than that. Then he added, I tell you the truth, you shall see heaven open and the angel of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is the word of the God. I always think it gives a nice different perspective on stories from the Bible, seeing them played out on screen. Although I don't think Jesus and his disciples were really made of Lego. They might have taken a little bit of creative license there. As we come to the message of God, will you pray with me? Father God, be present with us and surround us with the knowledge of your love. Jesus Christ, word of God, speak your truth through me so that my words might be not mine but yours. Spirit of God, move our hearts to accept your teaching and be changed, moulded into your new creation. Amen. I've started to get into a bit of a habit lately of starting my sermons with a random fact about myself. It's not intentional, it kind of just happened that way. Maybe it will keep you awake, I don't know. But today's fact is one that may well surprise a lot of you and in some cases you may never see me the same way again. So here goes. I am, in fact, a Victorian. (laughs) I know! Shocking, right? (laughs) I'm not much of a Victorian, to be fair. My parents were already planning to move to Adelaide when my mum was pregnant with me and they just waited until I was born before making a move. So I was born in Melbourne but moved here when I was six weeks old and have lived in Adelaide all my life since then. Still, it doesn't stop me from being the butt of Victorian jokes within my family. My mum's from New South Wales, my dad's from Tasmania and my younger brother and sister were both born here so we're kind of all over the place. Though my brother's girlfriend actually happened to be from Melbourne too so I'm not the only one anymore, I've got company. (laughs) But anyway, I digress. The point is, we as people, we do tend to put a lot of weight on where someone is from or where someone lives, don't we? It can pretty heavily shape our opinion of them. So there's that good old rivalry between South Australia and Victoria, especially when the conversation turned to the footy, right? But it works on a local level too, doesn't it? 
it wouldn't take a lot of thinking to come up with parts of Adelaide that you'd rather avoid if you had the choice. I won't name any, Elizabeth, but (laughs) there you go. And just about anywhere you go, actually, we will have that place. When my mum was growing up in Bendigo in country Victoria, her mum was always quite dismissive of anyone who hailed from the Eagle Hawk area of the town. Or, I'll try to get the accent right, Eagle Hawk. (laughs) Funny how even hearing that accent can give you the impression of what kind of place it was. And then, of course, on a larger scale, it's pretty easy to judge someone based on what country they're from, isn't it? We all do it probably without even realising when we meet someone from somewhere different who has maybe a very obvious look or obvious accent. But we can tell if someone's from America, England, Scotland, Germany, the Middle East, Africa. Immediately it gives us a certain perception of what the person's probably like, isn't it? It's not necessarily always bad, nor is it always wrong. But it is something we do. So why do we do it? What sort of wires us to act this way? Well, like I said, these perceptions, they aren't always wrong and very often they have a basis in fact. Where you come from, that does impact who you are and how you act. Someone from Melbourne will do things differently from someone from Adelaide. It's a different environment different expectations and you get different people as a result. And in the same way, someone from, say, America will have pretty predictable differences compared to an Australian. We have expectations based on what we've experienced or what we know or what we've heard, which we then use to quickly fill in the gaps of what we don't know, especially if it's something we feel we need to be careful of. We don't want to be hurt or misled or anything like that. It's a pretty natural human thing to do, to prejudge, to be sceptical, to find reasons to assume the worst. It protects us, but it can also cause us problems. There's no better example of that than in this little story about the calling of Philip and Nathaniel. So Philip has been called by Jesus to follow him. He recognises who Jesus is straight away. He sees that he's the Messiah who the Old Testament prophets wrote about. So he goes and finds his friend Nathaniel and tells him all about Jesus, as you do. And in doing so, Philip mentions where Jesus is from, the town of Nazareth. Remembering here that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, a pretty significant city, the ancestral city of David. But Mary and Joseph only went there for a census, since Joseph was a descendant of of David. Their actual home was Nazareth, a town in Galilee, and once they returned from fleeing to Egypt, they resettled there. Now, today, Nazareth is actually a pretty decently sized city, But back then, it was a real backwater. Historians today reckon it probably had a population of only about 400 people. It didn't even register in a lot of historical records until a bit later in history. So 
to give a modern-day equivalent, you could imagine looking at a map of Australia and choosing one of those really tiny outback towns somewhere that wouldn't even be labelled on most maps, pointing to it and saying, next Prime Minister is going to be from there. Really? And that's pretty much what Nathaniel's reaction to this news was. Nazareth, can anything good come from there? He's sceptical and he has some pretty valid reasons. Nazareth is not the kind of place you expect a great king or prophet to come from. And Nathaniel obviously doesn't want to blindly follow the wrong person. He doesn't want to pick some crackpot false messiah. He's protecting himself and probably thinks he's being faithful to God just by using his head. But actually, his scepticism very nearly causes him to dismiss the true Messiah, the Son of God, out of hand without even meeting him. Do any of you know someone like that who won't even hear a word about Jesus, who refuses to consider him out of some preconceived idea of some sort? Is that perhaps something you yourself have done somewhere along the line? The good news told by this story is that God does not leave people in their scepticism or their unbelief. He doesn't give up. He keeps pursuing. Even when we would give up on someone, he doesn't. He gives grace to the sceptic. I know plenty of stories of people who were resistant to faith and yet God still brought them home. It may have taken a short time, as it did with Nathaniel. It may have taken a very long time. I can also say there are people in my life whom I am waiting and praying for God to redeem them as well. And I don't think I'm the only one there. Looking then at how Jesus deals with Nathaniel, that then can tell us a lot about what grace looks like and what we can look for in the lives of those who are resisting him. And if you are resisting him, perhaps look and see these things in your own life because mark my words, they will be there if only you look. They are to say that he invites you He sees you and he is with you. He invites you, sees you, is with you. We'll go through those things one by one. Firstly, Jesus invites you. And believe it or not, most of the time this is not some disembodied voice saying, hey, I'm Jesus, come and follow me. Now, he could do that if he really wanted to make a point. Don't rule it out. But most of the time, does anyone remember the parable of the banquet about the man who throws a feast and invites all sorts of people to his home? When the time comes, he sends someone out to tell people to come. That's how invitations were made in those days. And that is how God very often does invitations even today. He sends people. He uses people like you and me. And it isn't an official or forced thing, it's just natural. Look at Philip. 
She's so excited to have found the Messiah and at having been called to follow him personally. And what's his first reaction? It's to go and tell his friend about it and hope he'll want to get involved as well. And this isn't even the first time that happened in this chapter. Yes, Philip was called directly by Jesus, but he's actually the exception rather than the rule. Everyone else was directed to Jesus by someone they loved and trusted. Andrew and John, we read a little earlier in the chapter, they were disciples of John the Baptist. So when the Baptist says, hey, that's the Lamb of God, you should follow him instead, they did it. And Andrew brought his brother to Jesus, Simon, who we know as Peter. And Philip brought Nathaniel, as we saw. Now make no mistake, this wasn't Jesus sitting back and letting others do the dirty work for him. He worked directly with Philip and he could have done so with others if he chose. As he tells Nathaniel, and we'll get to this in a bit, he saw Nathaniel before Philip even spoke to him. He knew exactly where Nathaniel was and what he was doing. But he chooses to work through people, those who already have faith in him, filling him with grace to the point where it overflows to those around him. I'm reminded of the Jeffrey Bingham quote that we sometimes use in this church to define our attitude to evangelism, that it's a heart too full of of the love of God to contain it. And how full of God's love must Philip's heart have been that he went straight to his friend and kept persisting despite Nathaniel's resistance until he came. Come and see. That's the invitation. Jesus invites him. The second way God shows his grace through Jesus Christ, he sees you. Now I'd forgive you if verses 47 and 48 confuse you a bit. It's not immediately clear what they're getting at. What does Jesus mean by eh, a true Israelite in which there is no deceit? And what was so special about this fig tree that it changes Nathaniel's attitude from scepticism to belief instantly? We don't know. But that's actually the point. We don't know Nathaniel. Jesus does. Jesus said something, pointed out something about this, him sitting under this fig tree, which would have meant nothing to anyone looking on. But clearly to Nathaniel it did mean something. And that's the point here. He's showing how he knows Nathaniel. In the TV show based on the lives of Jesus and his disciples, The Chosen, the entire episode is dedicated to Nathaniel's calling. And obviously it's dramatised a bit, but in this adaptation, Nathaniel is an architect with dreams of designing and building beautiful synagogues that would reflect the majesty of God and bring him glory. But his ambition becomes his downfall A construction accident happens on his watch and it leads to him losing his job and all his Roman commissions and all his hopes and dreams seem dashed. In the darkest moment of the episode, he sits under this fig tree 
burning his old synagogue designs, his pride and joy that would never see the light of day, praying to God, reciting psalms from the Bible, and finally bursting out with the desperate exclamation, Do you see me? And you can imagine then the poignancy of the moment when Nathaniel meets Jesus and Jesus tells him, I saw you, Nathaniel, under the fig tree. Now, like I said, that's entirely an invented story. Perhaps that moment's significance to the real Nathaniel 2,000 years ago might have been entirely different. But the Chosen's adaptation draws attention to a really important truth. We all want to be seen. We want to be loved, especially when everything seems hopeless and especially when we feel like we're not good enough. We all go through more than enough moments like that, don't we? Jesus sees us. He saw Nathaniel, and what did he say about him? Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. No judgment? No, you're really sceptical, we'll have to work on that. No, he sees Nathaniel and he loves him. He sees all the good in this wonderful creation of God. It's a similar realisation that drove David to write Psalm 139. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grain of sand. And it's the same thing that drove the woman at the well in John chapter 4 to run back to her village and tell everyone about Jesus. Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. When we understand this, that we are known beyond what any normal human could know about us and that we are loved despite our flaws and failures, God takes pride in us. That's a game changer. The invitation brought us here in the first place, but knowing he sees us, that cracks our assistance, our scepticism. He sees you. He knows you. He loves you. And finally, he is with you. Having that moment of realisation that God sees us is one thing, but maintaining it afterwards is a bit of a challenge sometimes. Put it this way, today is January the 14th. It's been 2024 for two weeks. Those of you who made New Year's resolutions, how are they going? We know it as Christians. We know what is right. We know we should love God and love our neighbours, but keeping those commands is difficult to impossible at times, isn't it? It's why we need to keep coming back to prayers of confession. No matter how honest our intentions were, we can't maintain the rage. We can't please God or remain faithful to him of our own volition. We need help. When Nathaniel declares his faith, Jesus recognises that that's small fry compared to what's still to come. You believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than that. 
she goes on, Very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, at first glance, you might think this is just talking about a miracle, a vision, or maybe even a promise of what the new heaven and earth might look like. But actually, Jesus' point is somewhat different from that. What he's doing is quoting almost word for word a vision that someone already had way back in Genesis chapter 28 when Jacob, the grandson of Abraham, was on the run from his brother Esau who wanted to kill him. Jacob had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. See the similarity there? But what came next in Jacob's dream was very important. God himself was above the stairway and he spoke to Jacob, I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Once again, a dark and difficult moment where Jacob might well have wondered if God was with him. He would have been justified in thinking God had abandoned him and he'd just done a terrible thing after all, stealing his brother's birthright. But God was there. He saw Jacob and loved him just as he did Nathaniel. But not only that, he made promises to Jacob. Promises that he'd already made to his grandfather Abraham about being the father of a great nation and blessing all peoples on earth. And a promise to be with Jacob, watch over him, never leave him. And it's unconditional. Nowhere does God say, don't pull what you did with Esau again or I'm out. He just makes promises. He says he will do this, and he did. God was with Jacob for the rest of his life, and Jacob ultimately became the ancestor of the nation of Israel, and ultimately of Jesus. All peoples on earth truly were blessed through Jacob and his offspring. In the same way then, through Jesus, God makes incredible promises to us. Forgiveness of sin, salvation from death, everlasting life with him. And he promises to be with us always, even to the end of the age. Even now we have the Holy Spirit to counsel us and remind us of everything Jesus has said. When we fail, when we stumble, Jesus has not abandoned us and he never will. By his spirit he lifts us up. And that is God's grace for the sceptic. The sceptic we all were at one point before we believed. He invited us. Maybe that was in childhood through a Christian home, Christian parents 
a church you grew up in. Maybe you wandered and he brought you back. Maybe it was a friend who brought you in. Or perhaps Jesus drew you some other way. However it happened, you're here. You're listening. You've been invited and you took up the invitation. He saw us. God knew us before the foundation of the world. He planned us out, every single detail. He knew what would happen and who we'd be, the good, the bad and the ugly. And he loved us. He made us as we are for a reason. And he looks on you as his creation and as his child. God sees you. And he is with us. From the start of our lives right up to the end, he's there helping us, sustaining us, lifting us up when we fall. He never leaves us to our own devices or makes us go it alone. He's there, always. And for the sceptics among us, wherever we are in our faith or lack thereof, that is wonderful news, isn't it? Perhaps it's what you need to finally take that step of moving past that instinctive resistance and saying, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. But it's also beautiful news even to the sceptics who aren't here yet because they haven't been invited or haven't yet accepted the invitation. That same grace, that same love is calling them by name, just as it called us. And so, as the people delivering this invitation, we can know that the one sending us is faithful and good and be filled with his love to the point where our hearts can't contain it. This is the grace of God. As Nathaniel discovered 2,000 years ago, so people are still discovering it today. And I pray that we will continue to discover it today and every day. Amen.